And our mission was to push back whatever Russian brigade or division, armor division it was. And your life expectancy of the guys up front is 45 minutes. So it's our job to make it 50 minutes. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Manuel Alzaga returns to the podcast after his debut in episode 57. He returns with his experience as a US Army 18-year-old assistant artillery gunner in West Germany. He tells of his first impressions of West Germany, details of the 1982 Reforger exercise, that's the return of forces to Germany exercise, as well as the life expectancy of a frontline soldier on the East German border should the Cold War have turned hot. Now, if this podcast was a magazine, you wouldn't mind paying a few quid or a few dollars a month. So I'm just asking you to support us for the bargain price of $3 a month. You join a select band who help cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. And you also bask in the warm glow of being an official supporter of the podcast. And don't forget, you also receive the much sought-after Cold War Conversations Drinks Coaster 2. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate, or you can use the link that displays in a number of podcast apps. So, back to today's episode. Manuel's story starts as he steps off the plane at the Rhine Main Air Base, which was the primary airlift and passenger hub for United States forces in Europe. We welcome back Manuel Alzaga to our Cold War conversation. We landed in Rhein-Main, and it was in the afternoon, sometime in September of 82. Beautiful. And I remember we were bused from Rhein-Main, not too far from Frankfurt, and I don't remember exactly where, but they had these giant warehouses and there were climate controlled and they were fenced off with barbed wire and they were ran basically uh, with the U.S. military and civilian contractors. So they bust us from Rhine Mine to this massive warehouse facility, maybe half hour, 45 minutes south of Frankfurt and my first time on the Autobahn, cars are just zooming by you. You know, everyone's all just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because we just slept eight hours. <laughs> and we got to the checkout points in uh, the warehouses. What happened there is we had an advance party leave a few days earlier from our unit. Each unit had an advance party. Mm-hmm. And they basically had everything ready for us to go. So we literally got there. And... We packed up our gear, our duffel bags, our backpacks. Uh, we checked our weapons. We did an inspection of the M110. We didn't have any live ammunition. I remember that. I kept thinking we're going to draw, draw live ammo. And no, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, and we we fired up the, the artillery piece, a howitzer, and we had this checklist. And then we all lined up. Within a matter of about six hours, 
and it was a beautiful sight. Okay, just four M110 howitzers roaring, and behind them we had what was called the M54H, which was basically they carried the ammo. And then we had another vehicle called the Gamago, where like the XO rode in. We had the FTC track, and it was just a hoorah moment, I guess you could call it. You know, we're getting ready to go. But I just found it strange that we didn't have any ammo. And again, the advanced party had a lot to do with that. They did the paperwork, I guess, a guess of the vehicles and make sure everything was in order for us. And then we convoyed right outside the gate, I think it was. And we got a briefing, a simulated situation that uh, the hostilities have broken out and uh, the whatever tank division from the Russian guards was coming into the folded gap. And our our mission was to hook up with the advanced brigade of the 1st Infantry and to push them back. And, you know, that's where everyone started getting all excited and pumped up. And any questions? And, you know, they were given maps. And our mission was to push back whatever Russian brigade or division, armor division it was, and that they were coming in droves and were calling for reinforcements. And your life expectancy of the guys up front is 45 minutes. So it's our job to make it 50 minutes. <laughs> you know, the yeah. some of the humor that happened in those days. Probably wouldn't fly now, but that's what they said. And then we got a motivational speech by our battery commander who got it from his battalion. Yeah, battalion commander. And, you know, hoorah. And uh, some of us said our prayers, like if we were really going into battle. And that was the whole idea. And then we got on the Autobahn heading towards Wurzburg. And I remember that clearly because my job was to get on on, on one of the 548s and do the 50 cal and man it. And you're sitting up there and all these cars are going by, you know, beautiful cars, clean country. You know, I've never seen such a cleaner country in my life than in Germany in 1982. And then I remember people driving by and waving at you, giving you peace signs. And some of you giving you the the middle finger, you know? <laughs> and it's like, well, what's all that about? Well, my sergeant, he was there before. He said, well, not everybody likes us over here. And I found that interesting. You know, again, I was 18. It's like, why wouldn't they like us? It's like, you'll find out. You'll find out. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, to be young and naive, right? But uh, we convoyed down towards, and like I said, I remember Wurzburg because we passed beautiful castles. And we set up a perimeter and we we bunked down for the night, and it wasn't far from the. I'm not sure it was the Rhine River. It was a river, and there was a little village called Moose M O O S, mm. and we we're supposed to bunk down, and we're going to rotate guard duty, because the next morning at 0500 we're going to move towards the border, and support. And I don't I didn't understand that. It's like, well, if we're going to get there and help them, and they're dying, why are we bunking down? Well, you know, in a real life situation, we'd head right to the border. But since it's not, we got orders to bunk down because of traffic. <laughs> All right, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, me and other 18, 19, 20 year olds, privates, specialists, we can't sleep. We're excited. We've never been to Germany. Some of us have never been out of the country or our home state. And uh, I remember kids driving by in bikes and waving at you and saying, God knows what, but it's not a friendly. And they're they're motioning with their hands, like to their mouths. And 
you know, being a smart-ass little 18-year-old, I said, what do they want? They want us to feed them? And my section chief, Staff Sergeant William J. Gynup from Troy, New York, great guy. He said, no, no, they want to... They want our sea rations. We still had sea rations back then. This was pre-MRE. Right. I was like, yeah, if you have mine, I don't want this piece of, you know what? And I said, no, 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 they'll trade you. So, so we get the chocolate bars. They're called John Wayne bars. They're like these little round chocolate bars. They're good. And sea rations. And oh, and some of them wanted cigarettes. And I know now it's not okay. But back then, 1982, uh, you know, we give them some cigarettes. And they're like 15-year-old kids or something. And they'd either take them to their parents or smoke them. And, and then my sergeant says something to them in German, and I had no idea what it was, but he said, you guys want any bread, any brochen? And I said, that, is that bread? He said, yeah. So these kids took off, and I'm thinking, ah, they ripped us off. Dumb kids, you know. But they come back, I'm going to shoo them away. They can't be in here anyways. But lo and behold, about an hour later, you know, these kids come back with these long pieces of bread, and butter and jelly and apple juice, a lot of apple juice because I guess they were just in the harvest season. And it was really cool. They were very nice kids and they were talking to us in English and uh, asking about America. And, you know, I try to tell them, well, you know, it's okay, it's fun. But all I could hear better, <laughs> no, no, America's better. America's past best. And, and, and my start say, nine, 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 Deutschland is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were you told how to um, deal with civilians as part of your training or not? Yes, absolutely. This happened closer and closer as we came to our deployment date. I remember uh, somebody from battalion coming in and training us and giving us some very basic information like, good day, you know, guten tag. Avidazin, Danka, thank you. Um, and also that we were ambassadors from a country, that we were representing the United States, and that we were not to let them on our vehicles, we were not to fraternize with them, we were to be friendly, and to never point a weapon in their direction. Absolutely not. We followed all, we followed the weapon. Uh, law, obviously, mm. but everything else went out the window when we got there. It's like, yeah, come on in. We'll show you, you know, the big bullet artillery, and this is sea ration, and and this is my helmet, and you know, there were kids, yeah, and they, also some farmers were very nice. He brought us like baskets of apples, and, and you know, I remember nobody, <laughs> nobody really had issues. But the main thing we was always we did follow is that don't point a weapon at anybody, nobody, and that was followed. But everything else kind of went out the window in my section, and you know, there was talk of like, well, maybe we should get them some beer. And my sergeant said, nope, you're not going to do that. I'll grass your ass. That was the saying back then. You have to wait till later for that. But we're also told a little bit about the history how, but uh, East Germany and Warsaw Pact were the enemies, and they may invade West Germany someday. I, thanks to your program, actually, and, uh, and, and your podcast, I did get that book on uh, Operation... Um, uh, the Able, Able Archer. Archer. Yeah. And, and I read most of that book already, and it was just shocking to me that 
the Russians in Warsaw Pact thought we wouldn't invade them. To be quite honest with you, Ian, we were ready to invade anybody. I mean, we were just building up. After Reagan took office, we still had stuff from the Vietnam War. Morale was getting better. There was a lot of drugs and alcohol from my from my point of view. I'm not saying everywhere, but at least where I was at. And But that was changing as I was coming in. So I got to see that transition from very bad leftover Vietnam era to a uh, to more of a esprit de corps, more pride in America. But but the briefings that I got, I know you asked me the question, I went off on a tangent. No, 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 uh, I but, like tangents, I told you that. Let me, let me, let me <laughs> read myself back in. Uh, we were told basically some of the courtesies uh, that how we should act, like when we're on leave, be respectful. If uh, we damaged anything, we're supposed to report it to our section chief right away, because we had these giant artillery pieces and they would tear up the cobblestone rolls. And that was expected, but like, let's say we ran over a, a mailbox, we're supposed to let the section chief know, we're supposed to wait, and we're supposed to stop the whole convoy and say, you know, there's been some damage done, rear echelon, something like that. And a jeep would pull up, and I guess it'd be damage control, I don't know what they would talk about, but then the convoy would move on. We were told to respect the fact that not all Germans were Nazis. And again, as an 18-year-old, that was new to me. It's like, oh, okay, uh, this was basically something that happened, but they all didn't support it. A lot of the Germans really don't want to talk about that. They told us that, too, to not make fun of Nazis and anything neo-Nazi-related, that they're a good country. They're our allies. They're one of our strongest allies. And economically, we support each other. And also, we had a little class about... Uh, uh, sexually transmitted diseases and how some fraulines might want to be with you even if they don't know you and some of them are, are wanting money some of them are not so but i never got to deal with that unfortunately <laughs> but uh, we're we're told that we're told about tipping i remember oh and the, the mark exchange rates wow Ian, you're making me think about things i haven't thought about in years but we're gonna they told us, like, after the maneuvers, we're going to have a little bit of time off. And what the exchange rate was, at the time, for $1, you got about four marks. And, again, I didn't know what that meant, but all the sergeants, the older guys, like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, basically, you had a lot of money to exchange, and it was a good exchange rate. They also talked about the potency of the beer. <laughs> and you got to be responsible and only have one beer. And... Also, they cautioned us, I think this part's at the very end, I guess, to make more of an impact, about, about Russian spies and Warsaw Pact spies, how they're everywhere. And you got to be careful what you say. Even at a bar or a pub or a restaurant or whatever, people may ask you questions and you're not to say anything. They gave you this little card with, I think, had a Russian flag. You're supposed to call this number and, you know, I was at this bar in this city, and they asked me this question. This is what the guy looked like. Uh, that never happened to me during Reforger. Later on, it did when I was stationed over there. But uh, during Reforger, they they said there's a lot of spies. And again, reading reading you know some of the books and listening to a lot of your podcasts, I realize that now how how vulnerable and how prevalent I guess uh, espionage was at the time. Um, yeah, are you that saying that? It. Are you saying that somebody approached you later on then that you had to report? 
Yeah, what happened is well, we we might save that if that's later on, anyway. Okay, yeah, uh, we sure, keep sure. the we fine. keep the listeners. Uh... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. On the edge of their seats for that one. That sounds like an interesting <laughs> well, story. I don't know about that, but okay. Your um, lagered, I guess, is what we'd call in the in the British Army with, with your unit uh, next in this uh, town of Moose. And then the next day, the exercise starts proper, does it? That's correct. But we got a... 0400 maybe before daylight. We had a quick chow, which consisted of sea rations. Back in those days, sea rats were cans and A rats, I think, were the hot meals. So we got sea rats and we lined up and we were given the order. And we went around again, the, the Wurzburg area. And we were, I think, the blue team. And we had colors. And what happened is we'd be on a convoy and this is not in the training site. This is out of the country. You know, most people think about graph and beer and stuff like that, uh, but this was on the country. And then we'd get a radio communication or the front track, the FTC would make an arm hand sign and we'd be pulling off and our advanced party would be there or someone from the infantry Ford observer and we'll say, like, fast track, come over the radio. That means be prepared. We're going to get off the road and set up for fire missions. Fast track, ETA, five minutes, ETA, four minutes, you know, jump out point, coming up, follow convoy. And then we get off the road and go into what was just harvested, the dirt fields. And then our ground guys would direct us in the direction. We'd point the guns. And then that's when we went into action. We set up what's called a colometer, which is basically um, a prehistoric uh, compass system. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we have to lay radio wire to FDC. We had the spools, and we had to lay it and run across and hook it up with them. They run back and test the radios. And then we'd have to – we didn't have artillery rounds, but we'd simulate that we were loading rounds, and we'd have to have one in-chamber uh, just a general one or have one on standby and then have an order. We'd have to have a, a high explosive round, a loom round, maybe a white phosphorus round and all that was simulated. So it was easy. And then we'd have to set up the tents. I mean, I'm sorry, the nets. And these are the camouflage nets and they were a pain in the butt. I mean, everything gets stuck on there. You had web gear and your, and your equipment, you get stuck up on there. You have to put it up and we had to do it like in 15 minutes. So we're pretty good. And since we didn't have any live artillery rounds, boy, we did it quick. And we're, we'd report, you know, 
section one, ready for action, gun two, ready for action, gun three. And then when everyone reported out, we'd have to have other people, usually the lower ranking, they had to work their way up to the guns or the support personnel, like maybe the cooks and stuff. They'd form a defense perimeter around our, our firing point, our firing base, if you will. And then when all that was communicated, then we get the green light and, and a FTC, and this is all by radio, mm-hmm. uh, fire line, standby permission. And that could last anywhere from five minutes to an hour. You had to be ready. And then all of a sudden you hear, fire mission! And everyone had to say, fire mission! Stop what you're doing. You go to your positions. In my case, I was the assistant gunner. And I'd go up there and over the radio, they say, uh, quadrant, blah, 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 deflection, blah, blah. So start uh, doing the elevation, elevation, blah, blah, blah. And you have to repeat every order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after they gave you the coordinates, it'd be round, H-E, fuse type, uh, time, time, point nine eight. Uh, oh, and then the gunpowder, that came to last. A charge five, which means you cut into pieces. It came, I think, in seven or eight increment pieces. And I think charge eight was the farthest you can have. So charge five, bag. And then you have to repeat everything. And you have to do it like within two minutes. And then you stand by, and then you hear battery stand by. And at that point, I learned a trick where I would pull the lanyard back up until I feel that pressure was going to click. And then you have to wait for the fire direction officer, usually a second lieutenant or a first lieutenant, would say, battery, stand by, battery, fire. And the point there was the first one you got out, you know, you were the hot shot. But, but again, we had no ammunition. Back in the live fire range, that was <clears throat> an honor and, a, and a, actually something to work forward. But this was all simulated. Everyone fired at once and there was no problems. There was no misfires. So we would do that all day, and then we would move. Then they'd say, breakdown, ETA, uh, departure, 1325, and it's 1310. So guess what? You had to pull down the net. You had to reel in the comma wire, any charge bags. You had to put them in the section. They're going to be burned later, and you had to pack everything. And then they'll give you the marching order, gun one, gun two, gun three, gun four. And we'd have to line up, and then we were all ready to go. We do that again until when well, we kept going until he told us again, you know, uh, the third infantry needs support and this quadrant. So that would come down from battalion and then it would come down to the batteries. And we have to do that all over again. Move, yeah. shoot, communicate, at least tell us in the, in the artillery. And again, the, the fact that we had no live artillery rounds made it easy, but still all the movement, all the taken down, yeah. all the traveling. And this lasted, I guess, Maybe for about two weeks with wow. very little breaks. And, and uh, how, the down how, the downtime was like when you were waiting for a fire mission, and you know you maybe sneak out. Hey, chief, I'm gonna go take a piss. Hey, chief, you mind if I go to that little village over there? And you weren't supposed to. <laughs> I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble 35 years later. But my chief, God bless him. Yeah, but you better not get drunk. <laughs> All right, I just want to go in, maybe buy some drink and a soda or something. Okay, well, bring me back. Uh, a candy bar. <laughs> so, uh, so, so uh, how, kind of a, how, huh? how, how quickly could you, I mean, if you, you're, you're going down a road and then you get the order that, 
second division needs support, how quickly could you then deploy and be ready to fire? What is that sort of time frame then? My memory of that is we were pretty darn quick. Um, it takes me about 15 minutes from the time we got the order that we were breaking track, which meant uh, we were going off the road yeah, and everything ready to set up to fire. It would be like, you know, 15 minutes. Yeah. Another piece I just remembered about, and it's been many, many years since I thought about, we had what were called hip shoots. And we, what that is, is the whole convoy stops and we load artillery piece either one, two, three, four, all of them, or just one, there was always an adjusted piece, which is usually the best gun section. And they would say, hip shoot, gun one, stand fast. And all, the whole convoy would come to a break. And we'd, we'd actually load artillery rounds and fire them. Now, again, this didn't happen in Reforger, but back in Fort Riley and Fort Sill, we would actually do that off the road. They're called hip shoots, right off the road. It's yeah. like, they, someone needs our help immediately. And I think that would be within maybe three minutes from the time we got the order to the time we actually pull one off the cannon, crank one out, as he used to say. Yeah. It would be maybe two to three minutes. And there was no time to put up any nets. Uh, it was all done by radio or <laughs> this seems so weird now, but we'd yell it down the road uh, from FDC all the way down the line. FDC is going to say, gun three, hip shoot. Gun one would say, gun three, hip shoot. We'd repeat, gun two, gun three, hip shoot. Quadrant, elevation, fuse, round, uh, powder, ready, fire. And the, the fire direction chief, I'm sorry, the fire direction officer would have a little red flag and he'd hold it up. And then literally, it's like in the races, when it went down, that, that round better be shot. And those happened with actual live rounds at Fort Raleigh and Fort Sill and Fort Bragg. But, and when I was, uh, and reforger, we didn't have that. It was just all simulated. Right. So everyone did great. <laughs> yeah. And did reforger. You, did you say you had armor piercing rounds as well? No, I did not. Oh, okay. um, we had high explosive rounds and they were basically designed for, Close range was a 15 to 25 miles uh, of accurate impact. Armor piercing rounds, that was, that as an old artillery mount sounds like a direct fire. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask you is whether you were trained at all ever to fire uh, over what I'd call open sites. Uh, you know what? In boot camp at Fort Sill, we had a direct fire training. And it was this old tank at the end of a hill. But in terms of like my actual experiences, we didn't do that. At least not in my units, in my career. The only time I did direct fire was in boot camp. And I don't remember what kind of round it was. But basically, you're shooting straight ahead like a gun. Yeah. And most of our missions were high elevation, low elevation. The higher the elevation, the closer the target, obviously. And the lower the elevation, the farther. But uh, no, to answer your question, I never did a, a direct fire armor piercing mission outside of boot camp. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I was just wondering. I mean, obviously, if you if you were having to do that, you were in big trouble anyway, I guess. If uh, 
if yeah, the yeah. enemy was that close. <laughs> so, so w- within this exercise, you weren't even firing blanks. Then you were just pretending to fire effectively. We were simulating. Yeah, what it was sounds better than pretending. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Reforger 82, and I don't know about later Reforgers, but Reforger 82, there was no live fire, there was no ammo. We did guard duty without live ammo. And again, that, that struck me as odd, but you know, uh, that's what it was. In fact, we never even went to an ammo dump when I was on Reforger. So a lot of people were happy because guess what? We don't have to clean the cannons when we're done. We don't have to clean our rifles when we're done. Uh, it, it, looking back, it was more like a show of force. Uh, coordination, the practice, going through the the motions. And I'm sure there was live fire exercises on Reforger 82, but but not in the unit I was at because, again, we, we weren't in Grafenbeer. We weren't in uh, – uh, there was another Cornfell, I think it was called. Uh, I'm sure they did a lot of live fire there, right. but, like, in the villages and stuff like that. I know the infantry used the, the red caps on the M16s you know, the blanks yeah. and they have a little red screwy thing on top of the, yeah. of the muzzle. We didn't even have that. We, we had no live ammunition. Well, they were probably, yeah. I mean, you know, they probably want to minimize the damage because potentially you'd still break windows even with uh, blanks, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, there was, <laughs> and I never saw them, but there was, I heard a lot of accidents uh, with live ammunition, um, with other units, um, but it was also cool because we got to train with the French, the English, and uh, and the German, the Bundeswehr. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun, too, you know. So, uh, yeah. Now, I'm sure someone probably did train with live ammunition on Reforge 82, but it wasn't me. And like I said, we were happy because we didn't have to clean our rifles. We didn't have to clean our guns. We didn't have to lift all that stuff. <laughs> and everyone was proficient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and how... I mean, with with these exercises, they've normally got umpires running around saying, you know, whether you've hit something or you've been hit and stuff like that. Was was that going on as well? Yeah, I remember that clearly. There was like, uh, we were, I don't know, what, hmm, let me think about it for a second here. We were like the blue team, for example. We were the Americans, NATO. And then op for opposing forces, they were like the red team or the orange team. And what umpires would do, they'd have like these big, maybe neon crosses or X's on their Jeeps and on their vehicles. And uh, they would, they would go back and forth after this, like we did a hip shoot, for example, mm. they would come by, they go to the BC, the battery commander. and say, okay. You suffered casualties. The target was diminished to move on. <laughs> they would make it, they would make the call, and I don't know exactly because, again, I was a specialist, I think, an E4. I, I wasn't really an NCO. I wasn't an officer. But the umpires come around, and they had helmets with colors, and they would say, yeah, you're dead. And then the battery commander would say, okay, gun one, you're dead. And we'd sit there for a couple hours and sleep <laughs> yeah. or goof off. Or, you know, read a book. Or they would say a uh, target was uh, destroyed, objective reached, next objective, move down the road, and be ready to support 
the 11th ACR or something like that. So I do remember umpires, and I think they were a combination of American and Germans, if I remember correctly, or maybe German observers. Mm -hmm. I heard rumors that there was Russian observers. I never got to see that. I wanted to see that. But mostly it was uh, officers in teeth would drive around and say, you're dead, or you have to, you know, you, you, you did the target, you destroyed it, you move on. And, uh, okay. You know, now that I'm looking back, I wish I asked more questions. Like, well, how did that work? But uh, that's basically what they did. Yeah. Umpires were all over the place. And sometimes there were disputes. I remember my battery commander get into an argument with one of them. And I don't even remember what it was, but, you know, we did this sort of target. We were the first ones here, blah, blah, blah. And then the the full board colonel got involved. And I don't know what their decision was. But back in those days, you did what you were told. And you were dead, you were dead. <laughs> and yeah. actually, I remember when they said you were dead, we'd get kind of happy because that means we got to lay around for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah no, also, Ian, um, going on a pageant still, we did a lot of NBC training, uh, nuclear, biological, chemical. We had to have our mop suits, and there was a simulated um, chemical round went off two miles away, and it, it came down from the fire direction center to the firing line. And you have to yell, gas, 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 drop everything, put on your gas mask within, I think it was 14 seconds. And you had to suck the air out of that and blow it back out. And then you had to put on the, and it said mop one, I think it just meant your mask. If it was mop two, it was your mask and gloves. And please forgive me, my memory's kind of foggy there, but I do remember mop four, meaning you had to put the whole thing on. And you know, when it's hot out, you know, in Germany it doesn't get that hot, but still, you have to walk around in those things like for two hours until they say all clear. We had a lot of that. And wow. I remember saying, well, you know, the, the Warsaw Pact, they will use chemicals on us. So that is something we trained on a lot, MOP4. And it was it was brutal because, like I said, it was very comfortable. They tried to, you know, handle a rifle or set a quadrant or an elevation. Even walking around, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it was re really hard. To, to, plus all your other gear on top of that, you know, yeah. it's like no, it made I, it very cumbersome. Yeah, I've seen those suits, and I think you know they. I can't remember the estimation, but the efficiency of the troops diminished massively with having those on, and really difficult to see through as well because the you know the 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 goggles would would uh, you know miss <coughs> and things like that. Well, I had I wore glasses most of my life, and Back in those days, they would have little lenses made for you, and they had to be on there just right, or else you couldn't see anything. Plus, oh, so it would you, fog up a lot. So you had like prescription um, headgear. Yeah. Yes, I did. My mask yeah. had a prescription headgear, and every time you went to a new unit, you had to take them with you, and you had to sign for them. And uh, someone, I think the NBC NCO at your unit would make sure that was squared away. But that was another thing, just me wearing glasses most of my life. It's like, ah, I can barely see those things. They were little back in those days, like little mm. round spectacles. And plus, you couldn't eat, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have well, water. You could yeah. have water. We had these little tubes that tied on. Well, not tied on. They basically clipped onto the top of a canteen cap. Yeah. And you had to raise your canteen upside down, hold it up, and you could drink water through that. But that was it. I mean, yeah. 
But then no, you wouldn't want to have too much water either because uh, it's got to go somewhere later on. <laughs> <laughs> True, yeah. And I think that's the whole purpose. Uh, yeah. Just to experience the, what it would feel like. Yeah. And on top of that, if it was an actual chemical attack, you know, the consequences if you didn't follow that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you you mentioned that you that you also had to work with uh, the Bundeswehr and the French Army and the, and the British Army. How how was that? I mean, how 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 did you get on with them? We got along great. Um, at the time, I remember. You don't have to say that because Br- I'm British, you know, Manuel. You know. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the French. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, at the time we were told that the French were uncertain. And I think they're a part of the 5th Army Corps. I think it was the 5th and 7th Army Corps, which consisted of many divisions. And the French were in the south. And I remember I still have a beret. In fact, I showed my wife. It's a black one. I got it from a French guy. I traded one of my you know, BDU caps for it. We got one great um, out in the field. Uh, and I remember seeing the British and just waving and looking at their tanks. And I was more amazed at their equipment than anything. Instead of like relationship wise, I, I really didn't, you know, Hey, how you doing? You know, waving at them. But, uh, I was more in awe of all the equipment, but I do remember clearly that British and German relationships were really good politically and economic, economically, the French were so, so, and again, this is a early eighties. Mm. Uh, Later on, and I was stationed in Germany, not part of Reforger, but I was actually assigned to Germany for about two years, and I was stationed in a German army uh, base. They were called Cassernes, and I love those guys. They were great soldiers, fun to work with. We used to party a lot. Um, you know, they were yeah. top-notch soldiers, and the Germans at the time were drafted. I don't know if they do that now in Germany, but mm-hmm. the Bundeswehr used to draft. And this is the second assignment. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I have none but respect for the Bundeswehr. The British, uh, we used to fight a lot in the bars. <laughs> we trained with them, and like I said, I had very little contact. Just the fact that there they are, hey, wave at them. You know, maybe talk to them a little bit, trade some stuff. That was, I think, pretty common. You know, trading uh, memorabilia, I guess you call it, uh, even tea rations and food, little insignias. But my real Bonding, I guess, came with my second assignment in the military when I was with the Bundeswehr. Okay, and, and we'll I got come on great to, with them. And we'll come on to that in a in a moment because I, I okay. I'm interested to talk about that. Um, so, Reforger uh, finishes. Did you get any time to uh, have a look around Germany, or was it straight back on the Pan Am seven four seven? Yeah, we uh, we were told because a lot of people asked, we're going to get any time off. And what's interesting is a lot of the NCOs, which were older than me, late 20s, early 30s, they've been in for a while. They've been in Vietnam. They made their career. They were maybe staff sergeants, sergeant first class, at C6 and E7. They've been in Germany, and they've had relationships, or their wives were from Germany. So a lot of the questions that were asked at this briefing, are we going to get any time off? And, yeah, we're going to be assigned to uh, whatever ever barracks. Uh, the current barracks that the U.S.'s forces had or the German forces had, and they would set up tents, massive tents uh, in their parking lots, and that's where we would be housed. And then 
this is towards the end. I think we're on the field maybe two weeks, three weeks. And the last few days, uh, it was very nice. We, we were told to, to pack one set of civilian clothing, and then we could sign up for bus trips down the Rhine, uh, to castles, uh, to churches. Or you had to travel in groups. And like, let's say the highest ranking person was in charge and made sure you you behaved. <laughs> so I remember I signed up for a, a bus tour of some castles, maybe around Frankfurt. And then also just one night in Liberty, we're restricted to the base. And some of the sergeants asked for special permission to go see their relatives or their in-laws. And that would be granted. But that was what is called RHIP. Rank has its privileges. <laughs> and they would get extra time off. Yeah. And I was, you know, an E4. And, well, if you're going to go downtown tonight, you have to have a permit. You're going to go with your buddies. This guy's in charge. And I remember doing that. Uh, and I remember seeing Frankfurt a lot, Wurzburg, the castles along the Rhine. And my big thing is, you know, I'm, I'm a metalhead. I'm a rock and roll freak. And my first thing is when I went into Frankfurt, I went to one of the record stores and I bought the new Rush album just because of the German pressing. And I thought to me, yeah. that was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> and of course, the pubs, the cast houses, we were given a, a couple of times off. And then they would also do this. They would have in the period of like the four or five days we actually had off, we would clean all the equipment, make sure it was ready to, for turn in. And then at night, we would have these things like, you know, you go into town or the USO is going to put on a concert on the base and there's going to be beer, but you can't leave the base. Uh, so it was a, 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 a multitude of different choices or the choices they gave you. So we're able to do that. And I remember that is uh, we got to just walk around, you know, yeah. downtown Frankfurt and yeah. enjoy a schnitzel have a beer and they encourage that actually when I mean, they like our, our officers, but they also made it very clear that one person has to be in charge and you better behave and you better not get totally drunk where, you know, you get in trouble. Cause then the pull aside is going to get you. Yeah. And they used to scare us with that because <laughs> they would carry machine guns and they played no games to pull aside. You know, they, they beat you up and throw you in jail if you misbehave. They didn't care who you were. Yeah. So they always held that over our heads. But we did get like USO shows. I remember one night, again, many, many years later, I have this memory just now, there was a concert that one of the US Army bands gave, and it was the German Army was in the audience, and the American Army, and, and then we, they sang like some traditional German songs, and then the German troops started singing along, and we had a beer call after that, and that was really fun. Mm. Uh, you know, you got to talk to your counterpart, and they curse that because you know they're they're your counterparts, they're your allies. Yeah, and I remember that night being really fun. Also, they had it all planned. You had to have your, you had to go through the process of getting the equipment checked in, and there was a lot of downtime. They find things for you to do. You know, police call. Well, we're going to go over to this German army base, and we're going to do a police call and break up their rocks or pick up their trash. <laughs> kind of. Uh, a PR stunt, if you will, you know, yeah. good relationships. So there, there was downtime, but they tried to keep you busy. And, and in all fairness, they did give you some taste of what German life was and, and what it had to offer. So it, yeah. it was kind of well-balanced. 
If you'd like to learn more about the subjects covered in this episode, do visit our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app or visit coldwarconversations.com. If you like what you're listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts, our Facebook page, or with your favorite podcast app. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram where we are at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.